All right, we are in Revelation chapter 13, and uh, we are going to attempt today in the next 50 minutes, 45 minutes, to cover this whole chapter, which is going to be quite a feat. This is an amazing chapter, and um, I'm going to have you help me in the beginning a little bit. Let me pray. Father, thank you this morning for the Word of God. Thank you, Father, for your plan of inspiring men like John to see and write, to leave the church through the ages with a, a clear understanding of what, in fact, is happening on the earth and why it's happening. And we pray today, Lord, that the Spirit of God would teach us, but not just our minds, that we would understand these words and these symbols and these truths, but more importantly, that our hearts would embrace, Lord, the lesson, what it is that you want us to understand and learn and live. And so we thank you today, Father, for this time together in, in this chapter, and we ask you, Lord, to open the eyes of our heart that we might see and understand and believe and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 13, I'm going to read it. It's not real long. Let's read straight through it to begin, and then we'll look at it. Again, a key chapter, 12, 12 13, uh, 11, 12, and 13 are just hugely important chapters. Um, they are transition chapters. They are in the middle of the book and are a huge segue between what we've been reading and looking at with the seals and the trumpets and then going into the, the bowls. And now we have this interlude in 11, 12, and 13, and, uh, <clears throat> and then on, in fact. So let's read chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It, also allowed, it was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived." And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, 
so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Wow. <clears throat> Okay, this is one of those chapters. Let's, let's talk about it for a minute. And I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you just to tell them out loud, and I'll repeat what you say into the mics for the sake of those that are listening. So did you guys have a chance to read it? Anybody read it? All right. So I asked you to kind of think about it. Who would you say, as we have looked through the book of Revelation this far, what we've been teaching you about our interpretation, the hermeneutic of how we're studying and understanding Revelation, what would you say could possibly be the significance? What are the beasts, or maybe who are the beast. Who would you say might be the first beast? Anybody? Okay, Doug, you said Rome. Okay. Anybody else want to throw anything out? Nations that have risen throughout history. So including Rome, it's also Greece, Persia. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Yeah, Andy. Political machine. But the political machine that the, the spirit of Antichrist would rule and reign in and through. You guys got it. Excellent. This is, that's exactly right. Now, let's go to the second beast. This is venture. Anybody want to venture who you might presume that to be? A new world order. Okay, in the sense of economics, propaganda, ideologies. Religion, yeah? Excellent. That's exactly right. We're going to talk about then the relationship between the two. So you guys are doing right well. That's exactly right. We're, we're not doing what we have done in the past or what many are doing, of taking these and trying to figure out who they might be in identity, you know, living, representing people or so on and so on. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, the way that we're studying the book of Revelation might be less intriguing and less exciting than dispensationalism. Uh, yeah, okay. I think a lot of people look at this and they go, well, first of all, we're not going to be around for this anyway. We're going to already be raptured. So this doesn't really affect us. So we can just get into this and imagine as much of this as we want and how wicked and how this is going to look. And it's not going to matter because we're going to be gone already anyway. No. And if we look at it the way that we have and understand it the way that I really believe that this is to be understood, we've understood this to be representative of all that's true throughout the church age. That Jesus has given us very kindly a revelation through a vision, a number of visions that he gave to the Apostle John on an island in 90 AD approximately that would tell the church that was suffering both then and the church that would suffer and live throughout the age until Christ returned what was happening behind the scenes and what to expect, and then encourage them to live accordingly. So it has huge implications if we understand it rightly. So let's look at it in a little more detail. So when we're reading the, and studying the book of Revelation, we have to remember that we're not reading future history that is yet to come, but we are learning the spiritual realities of our present age behind the scenes through a prophetic picture book. So we're not interpreting current events necessarily only. But we're looking at, more importantly, parallels from the Old Testament. And you're going to see in this text that this relates exactly to Daniel chapter 7. And I'm going to apologize because I've been fighting something off and I'm done with it. But it still has residue. So the Old Testament parallels... <clears throat> From, uh, from Daniel are going to be significant as we look at this. But remembering in chapter 11 that we had two witnesses who had, it says, finished their testimony and were then slain by a beast that rose from the bottomless pit 
It made war on them, it conquered them, and it killed them. So there were two witnesses, and we decided, we've concluded the two witnesses represent what? The church throughout the age. Now, the beast, it's not coincidental. There's a beast that rose from the pit of the earth that made war against the two witnesses, conquered them, and slain them. It sounds a lot like what we're reading in chapter 13 of what the beast is doing as well. It is exactly the same picture. But now in chapter 13, we're getting a little bit more detail about this beast that rose from the pit. In this verse, it says that he rose from the sea. Now, Daniel 7, 1 through 8, records a vision that Daniel received. And it's interesting because I I was thinking about this. Let's go ahead and turn to Daniel 7 for a moment. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. It was interesting, I was thinking about this. Why would we not recognize that the word beast is used in Daniel 7 as well as Daniel 13, and that, I mean, Revelation 13, and that maybe Daniel is teaching us, helping us to understand what this beast is? Why do we make it so hard? Because Daniel tells us what the beast represents in Daniel 7. He talks about these four beasts. He saw a dream in verse 1 and a vision as he lay on his bed and he wrote it down, a vision by night. And it says, verse 3, four great beasts, listen, came up where? Out of the sea. And four great beasts, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Um, And then the second, another beast like a bear and so on, and so on, and so on. And then he is told that these represent, in the rest of this chapter, kingdoms. That kingdoms that would be successive. The kingdom that Daniel lived under was which? Babylonian. Followed by which? Persian. Followed by which? Greeks. Followed by which? Rome. So these four beasts, and we talked about this when we studied Daniel, represented, for Daniel, four successive kingdoms. Now, it's very possible, and many believe, that the Roman kingdom continues to this day. Then, in one sense, we still live under the same kingdom, spirit, I guess you would say, authority that, that ruled in Rome in some sense. And it's very similar now more and more in the United States and Western, Western world of paganism and the way that the government functions more and more increasingly there's similarities, but that's not the point. The point is, is that Daniel saw these four kingdoms, and in his dream, he saw a kingdom that would be cut without human hands out of a rock, and it would crush these four kingdoms. And we know that that kingdom represented what? The kingdom of God. Again, this vision in Daniel 7 is exactly corresponding to what John is seeing in Revelation 13. And so he uses the word beast, the Lord does in Daniel, and John uses the word again by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beast, in Revelation. So we don't have to try to wonder what the beast represents. It's kingdoms, and we know that it is representative of the kingdom of the world. Imperial powers for Daniel, and like Daniel's fourth beast, Rome, that beast that John sees had ten horns, just like the dragon of Revelation 12. This beast has seven heads, ten horns, and royal diadems. So the image that John receives gives a picture of a beast coming with power, with rule, with thrones or authority under his control. And the beast in Daniel's vision also had ten horns, which represented kings, we know, that would arise in chapter 7. So there's absolute correlation between the vision that John sees and the vision that Daniel sees. So this this beast, and I'm not going to get into all the detail, you can go back and read Daniel 3 and Daniel 7, and you can see the relationship between those visions and Revelation 13, and the numbers are similar 
The number seven comes up again and again in Daniel's vision because it represents fullness or completeness. So we're talking about a total authority that this beast is wielding on the earth over men, over mankind. Comprehensive power and authority being exercised by the beasts in Daniel and by the beast in Revelation 13. And the fact that it comes out of the sea, the sea represents the nations of the earth in turmoil. We talked about this. It represents chaos. The chaos and the, and the disorder in, of the sea is representative of mankind in his, in his lostness. And so this beast comes out of the sea. Out of the, uh, it embodies the nations and the governments of the world, as you have told me a moment ago, throughout all of history. It's the persecuting power of Satan through governments throughout human history in this age. Since the crucifixion and up to, including when the man of lawlessness we'll talk about in a moment, comes on the scene. So this beast that John sees in Revelation 13 has blasphemous names on its heads, plural, which, place, which, uh, which points to false claims of deity made by human rulers. And we know that if you just study history, the Roman em emperors demanded worship. They put their images on the coins. Uh, they called themselves Lord. They called themselves gods. Um, they were deified after they died. Um, Domitian, who was a wicked, cruel emperor of John's time uh, during his, his uh, exile, demanded that sacrifices be made to him in Rome and required worship of his image uh, throughout the empire and upon penalty of death. So we, this is very much in accordance with what John knew to be true in his time. Blasphemous titles and heads. And it says in verses 2 through 5 that the beast that I saw, John says, was like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, its mouth like a lion's mouth. And again, this description combines the different beasts of Daniel's vision, each of which emphasize a different kingdom. So Daniel saw four represented by these animals, representing Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And, and John sees a beast that has all four composite in itself, in one. <clears throat> so this beast that John is seeing is a composite of everything that Daniel saw in his vision. You got that? It's, very, it's just amazing, the, the crossover between Daniel's visions and what John is seeing. So the question that arises, and this is where, again, dispensational takes the, this theory is that this beast represents an individual in the future, is what dispensationalism will teach, and that individual is called what? The Antichrist. So the question I would throw out to us today, is this the Antichrist? And I would say the answer to that is yes and no. Okay? It is yes in what sense? It takes the place of Christ, and it is a spirit, right? And what does John tell us in his epistle? I'll, I'll read it to you. 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 18, you might want to write it down. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. doesn't get any more plain than that. The answer is yes and no. That this beast represents the Antichrist, in one sense, someone who is yet to come. Paul calls the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. But we know that John teaches us in 1 John, his epistle, that the spirit of Antichrist has already come. And that there are many, many Antichrists. So in one sense, it's true to say that the beast represents the coming Antichrist, but more importantly, 
is to understand that that spirit has been at work in the world since the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And it's the same spirit. So this beast represents all of those, including this final man of lawlessness. And it's going to be an individual that will come on the scene right at the very end. If you want to read it, it's in 2 Thessalonians 2, in verses 3 and following, who's going to come on the scene right at the very end, who is being right now, the Lord is holding back until a, a time when he will release, when he will allow the enemy to be fully released. And we'll see that when we get to Revelation 20, the, the Satan having been bound will be re- unleashed at the very, very end and will great wickedness, great persecution, great suffering for the church for a very, very, very short time because that's all the church would be able to withstand and then God will come. The Spirit of the Lord Jesus will return and destroy all of his enemies. But that will happen at the very end. So this beast represents all, including that final man of lawlessness who throughout the church age have and will exercise blasphemous power in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we see in this text that this beast is a counterfeit to Jesus Christ because he parodies the death and resurrection of Jesus. One of his heads seems to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound, it says, was healed. In verse 3, and because it was healed, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So, again, this, this, the question is, what does this mean? And most commentators have thought that it identifies the slain but resurrected beast as, as Nero. Because Nero disappeared for a period of time. He ran away for a period of time and hid in exile for fear for his life, in fear for his life. And then he came back on the scene. But he committed suicide at the age of 30. So... But he didn't come back from his suicide. Okay, so many, there's a lot of problems with believing that, that this represents Nero. And again, I would just say this. Looking for any literal fulfillment of what we're reading is always going to lead you into trouble. Because that's not how I believe it was intended to be written. Now, in John's time, he's writing to, to persecuted, suffering Christians in the year 90 A.D., and, of course, they have a current context that is real to them. And so in their mind, I'm sure Nero came to mind, and they knew the story of Nero. Uh, by now, Nero is dead, and his son Domitian, first Titus and then Domitian, followed Nero as Caesar. And now in 90 AD, it's Domitian who is, who is Caesar. But they knew the story of Nero. Um, but they also knew that that Nero committed suicide. He wasn't slain. So it didn't really fit. Uh, another interpretation by many commentators that it simply represents the, the turmoil in Rome after Nero's death because Rome looked like it was going to fall. And then when Titus came in and Domitian came in, they destroyed uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD after Nero had died under Titus's rule. And then Titus and then Domitian brought in again back in the glory of Rome. So it looked like Rome was falling and it was dead and then it was resurrected again. So maybe it represents Rome. But there's probably an even better interpretation of of what this means. If we look at Scripture, let Scripture interpret Scripture. It tells us that the beast was wounded by what? A sword. And yet lived. All through Revelation, who is it that wields a sword? Jesus Christ. Revelation 2, he's spoken of having a sword. And then the end in Revelation 20, he returns with a sword. Sword of his mouth, destroying his enemies. So, if this is a correct interpretation, the beast wounds. Thank you, Hannah. You guys were searching high and wide for water, weren't you? Thank you so much, you guys. That was nice of you. 
<clears throat> so throughout the book of Revelation, it is Jesus who wields the sword. So if this is a correct interpretation, if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, it's very possible the beast's wound reflects what? The death, the death blow dealt by Christ when? At the cross. His atoning death, his life-giving resurrection, and then the triumphant establishing of the church with the power of the Holy Spirit. But then again, Peter writes to us and says what? That Satan is like what? A roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. So on the one hand, we know that the cross is victorious. On the other hand, we know that Satan is not yet fully destroyed. It appears as though he's yet in control. And even in, the, I was thinking, even in the church, people give Satan so much credit. It's like the enemy is equal. We've talked about this. Almost equal in power with God. Who's going to win? Who's going to win? Oh, it looks like Satan's got the upper hand. Oh, Satan did this. Satan did that. Satan took them out. Satan did this. Satan this. Satan. No. The only thing, and we're going to see this again as we go through this chapter, the only thing Satan could ever do is what God allows him to do. God is sovereignly in control of all things, including the activity of Satan in this day. Now, that makes my brain tilt in many ways, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true, and it gives me great comfort, great comfort. But so John sees this beast who had been slain and had been dealt, listen, a mortal wound by a sword, and yet now lived, or at least appeared to live. G.K. Beale, in his commentary, says this, Satan's wound appeared to be fatal, and indeed, it really was. Nevertheless, the devil's continued activity through his agents make it appear to John as though he has overcome the mortal blow dealt him at Christ's death and resurrection. He appears to have overcome it, but we know, in fact, that he hasn't. So this beast that is, is parroting, he is, he, is, he, is, he is a counterfeit to Christ, and he demands false worship in this text. And this beast is, is a picture, as we've already spoken of, of governments through the age, and it's when government takes the place of God in human lives. And we are living in an interesting time right now, are we not? Satan wants people to look to the state as if it were the Messiah. When the government is set forth as the answer for all human ills, economic, social, medical, spiritual, then the idolatry of the state usurps the worship of the true and living God. And America right now is in a battle in this very area for what's going to take control in the future of the government in which, under which we live. And if you read it all and you know that there's a huge battle in this current election being propagated regarding these very issues. It was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. How many times have we read this? What else have we read about? What other number? 1,260 days. What else? Three and a half years. What else? Time, times, and half a time. Every, all representing exactly the same time period, which is what? The church age. All the same length of time. All of them mathematically amounting to the exact same amount and all representing the exact same thing. Now, interestingly, Daniel talks about those that endure beyond that, the time times and half at times, because I believe that what Daniel is speaking of is that at that point, the man of lawlessness is released, and there's going to be a time period at the very end that the church will have to endure.
Do you know what I'm talking about in Daniel? Are you familiar with that text? Look at Daniel 11. I think it's 11. I'm, I'm just guessing right now. I didn't write it down. I'll find it really quickly for you. <clears throat> yeah, it is. It's the very end. Daniel 12. Daniel 12. I'm sorry. I love this. this I love this. I love this. Daniel 12.9, the angel speaking to Daniel says, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. That's now, you guys. We are, we are in that time. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. That's us. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So that desolation that we talked about is the crucifixion. Okay, it represented the crucifixion. 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. So there's 45 days added on at the end. To the time, times, half a time, 1290, two and a half, 42 months. And it's 45 days at the end. He says, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. I believe that 45 days is the time period following the man of lawlessness being released up to the actual return of Christ. So the church age is represented in by that time period from the cross up until the very, very end when the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist or this beast takes on human form, the spirit of this beast takes on human form for a short period of time. The church is persecuted. The church suffers greatly. The world is brought under the control and the authority of this wickedness, and Christ will return and destroy it. And we will endure. Those that are on the earth will endure through that. Those who are his. <clears throat> so this agenda of this beast is to acquire worship for himself and for Satan. And also, his second agenda is to violently perse persecute Christians when they refuse to give worship to the beast. It says in verse 7, Revelation 13, 7, it was allowed... Notice the word it. I noticed that too. It isn't he. It's it. Speaking of a spirit that manifests in governments throughout the age. Radu can tell us about it probably more than anybody in the room of what it's like to live under it. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So John is writing and his experience, what he's experiencing with his persecution was not unlike Daniel's in Babylon. Because Nebuchadnezzar did what? He set up a what? A golden image. Remember the chapters, Daniel chapter 3. And he required the entire nation to bow down and worship this statue, 90 foot tall statue in the middle of the desert. 90 feet, solid gold that represented him. And all of the nation was commanded and demanded worship of it. And who refused? The three guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down and they were thrown into a furnace to be killed by the fire, which obviously we know the story. They were not. The Lord kept them. So whether it was Roman emperors like Nero and then Domitian, or whether it was uh, the, 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 the people who persecuted the, the Protestant church during the Reformation, uh, a group of men called the Habsburgs, a family called the Habsburgs. If you study history, you know that they studied the Protestant church during the Reformation for the Catholics. Or Louis XIV in France persecuted the, the Protestants again in France during that time period. Stalin murdered 40 million of his own people, many of them Christians. Idi Amin, we know what he did in Uganda, killing Christians. We know what happened in Cambodia, 
under Pol Pot and all that took place under that. Mao, throughout the church age, there has been this spirit that has not only persecuted, but murdered, killed the people of God, made war on them. And it says in verse 7, conquered them. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer, conquer them. But we're not going to finish this chapter today. I'm going to, I'm going to just finish with this because this is really important, and then we'll look at the second beast next week. But our hope is, is listed here now regarding this, this truth in this chapter. And I want to try to, if we can, let's pull out of this three truths that we can, we can gain from this. And the first I would find is that it is in verse 7. Find the truth in this statement. It was allowed to make war on the saints. What truth can you find there that gives you courage and encouragement? It was allowed. It was allowed. What does that, what does that mean to you? What's it saying? It's, God in the, it's in God that's in control. He was only allowed to exercise authority for a period of time. It's an allotted period of time. And he can only do what God allowed him to do. Isn't it a mystery why God allows the church to be persecuted? It's an interesting thing to me. I thought about this. Why, why is it necessary? What does it, what is it, what is it, what's its purpose? I mean, let's think about this for a moment out loud. It's a refining fire, absolutely. That's one important part of it, no question. What other, what other reality could come from it? Truth can be seen. For God allowing the church to be persecuted. Dependence on him. It's, it's refining. It brings the church into absolutely into dependence on God. Why, would, why is that so important? Because we're living in a world where it's so hard to live dependent on God. Isn't it? I mean, it's so easy just to live dependent on us, or as we already read, on government. Expect government to give us and do everything for us. Instead of looking to God, and I've told you that story many times about the, 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 the Cambodian pastor who escaped the, 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 the murdering of, of Cambodia and when he was in the United States, asking him, what's the difference between the church in Cambodia and the church in the United States? And he said one thing. He said, we don't have what you have here. We only have God. If we're sick, unless God heals us, we die. If we don't have food, we don't have credit cards. If God doesn't feed us, we die. We only have God. And God shows himself faithful. What other purpose could there be in the church suffering? Peter tells us when, in one of his epistles, dial it up in your mind. Can you think of what it was? No, that's fine, Andy. You're doing good. Our suffering accomplishes a kind of obedience, and when our obedience is complete, then God will judge the nations. That's right. That's right. And it tests the genuineness of our faith. And Peter also says in that same chapter that it is the calling to live as Christ lived on the earth. So the apostles counted it a privilege to suffer. Because they were identifying with their Savior. I got to be honest with you. I am not at that point. But I want to be. I do. I want to be. I want to live my life to the extent that I can say, Lord, if you would ever grant, grant me that privilege, I would be blessed. He's molding us into proper building material. That's right. And he's molding us into his image. It's the suffering servant. It's the suffering servant of Isaiah 42. It's the suffering servant of, uh, revealed throughout Scripture that has always been uh, the picture of God's people, 
whether it was the nation of Israel, whether it was Isaiah himself, whether it was, it was Jesus Christ who is the suffering servant or who, whether it is now the church who is on the earth remains now the suffering servant of God. Because he's a just God, he has to do this. That's why, why is that? In what sense, Jim? That's a very important statement. Because of our sin. It, yeah, it's just of him to deal with us in a just way. But the, cross is, the cross has already dealt with our sin. But the sanctification now process is the purging of that sin out of our, out of our flesh. And in his love for us and in his justice, he deals with sin, both in the righteous and in the unrighteous. So that's true. So that's the first source. Yes, Andy, go ahead. It, 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 is, it, is the ultimate, it is the ultimate submission of our will to him. When we say, as Jesus did, not our will, but yours be done. It's giving our life over. It's giving our life over fully. Even, even to unto life itself. Even unto death. You know, and again, it's like, we can sit here and talk about this. And I was telling Kath on the way in today, I was just saying, the more you read and study, you know, this book, you realize that, the main theme of it is not really complicated. One of the main purposes of the book was to simply say to the church, endure to the end. I am with you. That's really what it was. Through it all, remain faithful and endure to the end. And this sovereignty is revealed in this text, not only in the fact that Satan was allowed only for a period of time, but also look what, what he was not allowed to do. He was not allowed and given authority over those whose name was written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. He has no authority over those whose name is in the book of life. It doesn't mean he can't kill them. I wish it did. We just got through talking about why God allows it. Perhaps. We don't know fully, but God knows. But it does say that he is not the one who is in control and authority over their life. Ultimately, it's God. When was my name, when was your name written in the book of life? Before. From all eternity. From all eternity, you and I have been called of God. It just blows my mind. But that's a great source of hope and comfort to me. Knowing that I am in God's hand and that nothing can take me from his hand. And I will stand before him, Jude promises. He is able to keep me from falling and to make me stand before his presence with great joy on that day. He is able. And that's the beauty of these truths. The second encouragement from this that I can glean is is what we've just got through talking about in verse 10, that we are called in persecution to suffer. We have this humble calling. Look with me at uh, Isaiah 33.1. Let's read two texts in the Old Testament really quickly as we come into a landing here. Isaiah 33.1. And then we'll look at Jeremiah 15. Isaiah 33. says this, Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom no one has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. And look at, look at Jeremiah 15.
verse 2. See, do I have the right text here? And when they ask of you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. So God is speaking again through Jeremiah to the, Bab to the church in Babylon and telling them, listen, this is of me. This is me. I am the one that's in control of this. Their context in, in Jeremiah is their captivity in Babylon. And you know the text in Jeremiah 29? Let's look at Jeremiah 29 really quickly, verse 11. This is a text that's quoted out of context all of the time, which is pretty typical of Old Testament texts. And people take it and they use it for victorious teachings. And the context is captivity here. Verse 11, Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you. Have anybody heard this text before? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found for I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. That's a context of exile, of captivity. And so the Lord is speaking through Jeremiah, as he is speaking through John in this text, saying, listen, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to be in the future for the church through the age, but I am with you. But it's my plan to allow this to take place. And I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it in your life. I'm going to use it to build my church. And I'm going to use it to testify to the truth of who I am. And I'm going to confound the wisdom of the world through the foolishness of the gospel. Through the weakness of the church, the, weak, the apparent, weakness, apparent weakness of the church, I'm going to confound the strong. And through what looks to be defeat, I will show myself to be victorious. For I did not choose the wise or the strong. I chose the weak and the foolish to confound the wise and the strong. The cross came in apparent weakness, but it is the power of God. And this is the message of the gospel. This is the message, the testimony of the church. And the church has to live in this world, in this age, under the power and the authority of this beast. And then of another beast that we'll look at next week, the beast of propaganda, as Andy so aptly described it, which is exactly right. To live under the authority of this beast and its helper, we live in this world under their authority, but not really under God's fully, under God's. So there is this hope of God's sovereignty, there is this promise of this humility that's worked in the church through captivity, through suffering. And then there is this hope of this victory as we persevere in faith. And if you look at, go back to Revelation, and we'll close with this. In verse 10. The very last part of verse 10 says this. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Say that. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's it. That's, that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life in this age. This, this, is, this is, as I said, probably the main theme of the book of Revelation, or at least a main theme. And John writes in his epistle, in 1 John 5, verse 4, he says, This is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our, our faith. 
So this beast that we look, this first beast that arises from the sea absolutely corresponds to the beast, the four beasts of Daniel 3 and then Daniel 7. It's a composite of those beasts showing this power throughout the age of this, this earthly, these earthly governments and the authority they exercise over mankind and the deception and the call to worship this beast demand to worship this beast. And so next week we'll look at the, the beast that arises from the earth and we'll talk about the false prophet and we'll talk about that infamous number and where it may be written and how it might be written. Is it a, is it a computer chip in your hand? 666. What does it represent? Let's talk about it next week. Think about it. Pray about it. When you understand, when you interpret Scripture, interpret Scripture with Scripture first. Don't go to current events to interpret the book of Revelation. Amen. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the truth of your Word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord, as you are instructing us and teaching us. Lord, our hearts are able to to grasp the urgency that you have for us at this hour we live in. We realize, Lord, that so much of the time we are asleep in the light. Awaken the church. We always pray this prayer, Father. Awaken the church in our day. Awaken this church, Lord, in this day to live our lives fully for you. We're grateful, Father, for the fact that you are in control. We are grateful that you are the one who, Lord, even has allotted the enemy's Affect and Lord the enemy's authority and the time in which he can operate. But we also know, Lord, that he hates what we are about. Protect us. Deliver us from evil. Keep us from temptation, we pray. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Provide for us today what we need, Lord. We trust you for today's bread and today's bread alone. And we thank you that you're faithful. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.